If you would now open in your Bibles to Acts chapter 14, Acts chapter 14. Today's sermon is entitled Escaping Vanity Fair uh, because we'll see in our text today, Paul preaches to a crowd and tells them to turn from vain things. And scripture is full of both hope, but it's also realistic that there's a lot in life that is vain. As Lara just read from Ecclesiastes, there's a, a grasping or chasing after the wind. And when we turn from our sin to Christ, we're not only turning from immorality, which we are, and lawlessness, which we are, we're turning from vanity, is what Paul shows us in this text. This idea of vanity in Ecclesiastes, this chasing after the wind, it's this idea of vapor, life is vaporous. You kind of live and die, the next generation comes and forgets who you were, and on goes the march beat of life. Ecclesiastes was a very wealthy man. He realized wealth didn't bring him joy. There's a lot of things that we chase after in life that are vain and will leave us empty in this world. And so today's text, we're going to be looking at verses 8 through 18, or actually through verse 20 together, and taking this theme of Vanity Fair, which I'll unpack a little bit in the sermon today because... uh, that, that town of Vanity Fair comes out of a great, famous uh, Christian allegory from John Bunyan. So to get us started, I just want to read verses 8 uh, through 11, and then I'll read a little bit of 14 and 15. So follow along, it'll be on the screen. I'll pray for us, and then we'll drop into today's sermon, Escaping Vanity Fair from our Life on Mission series. Let's begin at verse 8. Now at Lystra... There was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking. And Paul looked attentively at him and seeing he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. When the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices in Lycaonian. The gods have come down to us in the likeness of men, verse 14. But when the apostles, Barnabas and Paul, heard it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowds, crying out, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you. We bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God, escaping vanity fair. Let's pray. Well, fathers, we read your word, your inspired word this morning as this is preached, Lord. I pray that the, not only the vain things that this initial crowd was setting their heart and their hopes on would be clarified and repented of, but the vain things that we in this room set our hearts and our hopes on would be exposed by your word. Lord, the command to turn from these vain things to a living God still stands. And so, Lord, we pray that as we look at this text that you have given us and preserved by your spirit, Lord, that you would use it to release us from vain things that hold a grip on our lives, that we would turn to you, the living God, instead. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. It bears the name... Vanity Fair, because the town where it is kept is lighter than vanity. 
So goes a quote out of John Bunyan's allegory, Pilgrim's Progress, written in 1678. If you haven't read this allegory, I highly recommend it. It's uh, full of scripture, but the way the author uses it is largely in conversation with characters. One of the main characters, his name is Christian, and he's got a partner on his journey named Faithful, and they're traveling to what's called the Celestial City, which of course is pointing us towards heaven. And yet it's a dangerous and perilous journey that they must travel through, and just as they get out of some dark woods, they now enter into a city named Vanity Fair. And the holy way through Vanity Fair is the way to the Celestial City. If you've seen the magazine Vanity Fair, of course it was coined after (laughs) John Bunyan's Pilgrim Progress. And in this city, there's all sorts of tricks and trades and all sorts of entertainment and amusement and all sorts of frivolous things. And they are not interested in the celestial city at all. They are not interested in the things of heaven. They're not interested in Christian and faithful and their journey. In fact, the city starts to divide over them, so they arrest Christian and faithful, and hold them uh, against the laws of their land, essentially. And so they are locked up, and I'll get back to this at the end of my sermon. Eventually, Christian escapes Vanity Fair and continues on his journey to the celestial city. Well, in our text this morning, the language of vanity is introduced to us as a reader. As I already hinted at earlier, often we think about sin, we think about immorality, like sexual immorality or covetousness or greed. And certainly those are all sins, breaking the commandments, like the Ten Commandments. But Paul here takes an interesting theme that I think we would do well to consider. As they start to sin out the wazoo here, he says, You have to turn from these vain things. That there's a vanity in this world. The language of vanity that Paul's using here is used elsewhere in the New Testament. It's a Greek word that also means futile. It's empty. It's worthless. Or as I said in Ecclesiastes, the idea of a vapor. And he's saying, we have to turn from worthless things, from futile things, from vaporous things, from things that don't really matter to things that really do matter, namely to the living God. These are dead things that will perish. There is a God who made you, and he turns their eyes from vanity to God. And so if you're taking notes, there are three vain things that we will see in this text that God wants to turn us from so that we ourselves could escape from our own vanity fair in this world. So if you're taking notes, the first point in escaping vanity fair is God, the living God, he delivers us. He delivers us. The first vain thing that God delivers us from is vain narratives. He delivers us from vain narratives. I'm going to be reading verses 11 through 13 to fill this point out. Follow along. So I read verse 11. When the crowd saw what Paul had done, namely the healing that just happened, They lifted up their voices saying, Lycaonian, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Paul, they called Zeus. Lost my spot. And Barnabas, excuse me. The gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas, they called Zeus, because he's the big guy. (laughs) And Paul Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. And the priests of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance of the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifices with the crowds. 
The first vain thing that God delivers us from is from vain narratives. Now again, remember the context of this, and if you haven't been with us, we're going verse by verse through the book of Acts, so that's why we're at this text today. Paul and Barnabas have journeyed uh, from Antioch and Pisidia to Iconian. They preached in the synagogues there, and then large crowds came to Christ, but they were driven out. Hostility emerged in all of those cities, so they've traveled 19 miles south to an area that doesn't have a synagogue. This area is called Lystra. It's largely pagan. There's no people that know the Hebrew scriptures there, as we'll see. And there's some parallels here where Paul now sees a man who was born crippled from birth. If you've been following this season series since the beginning, chapter 3, Peter saw a man crippled from birth. Do you remember that? So there's a parallel Luke wants to draw our attention to here. And he says, he sees, both of the men see that the individual has faith to be made well. Both of the individuals, Paul and Peter, speak out in a loud voice. So he's showing us the parallel that the same gospel, and the same authority of Peter is the same gospel and the same authority of Paul. There's not two different messages here. There's one unified witness. And in the name of Jesus Christ, clearly, he's clearly preaching here. We don't see the name of Jesus Christ, but he's telling them about Christ. This man believes he has the power to be made well, and he he gets up. God heals him through the powerful name of Jesus, just like with Peter in chapter 3. Now, at first, the crowds are evidently not paying too much attention to Paul, but this gets their attention. Like, whoa, what just happened over here? This guy is now walking, and we know this guy. He's not a fake. He's not a fraud. This is not some stage hired goon. You know, this guy grew up here and has never walked a day in his life. And so all of a sudden, they think of the most natural, obvious things. Paul and Barnabas are gods. <laughs> they have come down in the likeness of men. Let's go get the heifer. Let's go sacrifice to these two men right here. Clearly, they weren't listening to what Paul was just preaching the whole time. He, he healed him in the name of Jesus. And Peter, by the way, in chapter 3, the same thing. It wasn't my own piety that did this wasn't me, it was Jesus that did this. But the narrative that is driving Peter, the story that is driving Paul, the reality that is driving them, the living Savior, these individuals don't have that backstory. And even as Paul is preaching it to them, they don't want to hear that backstory. You know why? They already have their own narrative. They already have their own backstory and if we watch it say, this makes no sense, it's because it makes perfect sense in light of their own religious upbringing and backstory. I want to read out of Stott's commentary here because this is very revealing. The crowd's superstition and even fanatical behavior is hard to comprehend, but some local background throws light on it. About 50 years previously, the Latin poet Ovid had narrated his metamorphosis, an ancient local le legend. You can go online and read it today. It's very long and beautiful writing. But the supreme god, Zeus, and his son, Hermes, once lived in the hill country of Phrygia, disguised as mortal men. In their incognito, they sought hospitality, but were rebuffed a thousand times. At last, however, they were offered lodging in a tiny cottage thatched with straw and reeds from the marsh. Here lived an elderly peasant couple named Philemon and Bacchus, who entertained them out of their poverty. Later, the gods rewarded them, but destroyed by flood the homes which would not take them in. 
he continues to say, it's, it's reasonable that these individuals were very familiar with that story. <laughs> and they thought, we better honor and glorify these people or they will destroy us just like the legend that we received from this incredible poem that was very famous back in the day. They were clearly worshiping and these were the, <clears throat> the gods of this region because there's a temple we'll see in a moment where the priests of Zeus come out. So they have an entire house of worship devoted to Zeus. Their entire religion and story is narrated by this legend. And so here's what I want you to see, church and friends. Everybody saw the same event happen. Everybody saw the same facts as they played out. But the backstory changed everybody's interpretation of what those events meant. And if you have the wrong backstory, then you will get the wrong results on how you should respond to things that are happening in the world today and in the future. The narrative makes all the difference whether you are devoted to vain things or interpreting the same things in life and glorifying God through them. And so God, the living God, delivers us from vain narratives, from false backstories, if you will. They can be religious. They can be irreligious. It doesn't much matter. There's a quote. I don't know if you've ever heard this. It's, he, uh, excuse me. Who controls the past controls the future. And who controls the present controls the past. Say that again. Who controls the past controls the future. And who controls the present controls the past. It's a famous quote out of a book. It was written by George Orwell, 1949. The book's called 1984. It's about a dystopian future where one group has all the power and controls the entire narrative and thus controls all the people. And we can look around the world and see regimes where this has played out. In fact, it was written during the era of World War II and Nazi Germany and so forth. So it wasn't this far speculative sort of thing. The power of a story, church, the power of a narrative, the power of a backstory to give a sense of purpose and meaning to present and to the future can control entire people groups. And even as the very person that healed this individual is saying, you got the wrong story, they can scarcely stop from sacrificing for him. What are the vain narratives that embed themselves in our own stories? in our own nation, potentially. We have to question the backstory and look for the truth. And the greatest way that we can know the truth, of course, is the revelation of God himself given from heaven through the word of God, the Bible. They didn't have a synagogue there. They didn't have the Hebrew scriptures there. We have that benefit, church. And so that story with all this pantheon of false gods is now being pushed out by the one true and living God, so the first thing that we see here, the, the thing that will push out vain narratives in our lives is to anchor your life on the word of God, to anchor your life on the story of God, to anchor your life in the truth of God. It will deliver you from vain narratives and it will help you interpret the present and the future in biblical, accurate, glorious, weighty ways. So the first vain thing, escaping from vanity fair, God delivers you from, is he delivers you from vain narratives. Secondly, 
God delivers you from vain worship. Vain worship. Verses 14 through 18. So they're about to sacrifice these animals to Paul and to Barnabas because they believe that they're part of the Greek uh, pantheon of gods. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard it, listen to this. They tore their garments and rushed out in the crowds crying, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you. And we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways. Yet he did not leave himself without witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with good, excuse me, with food and gladness. Even with these words, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifice to them. They're not quick to give up on their false gods. They're scarcely restrained from offering these sacrifices as the very quote-unquote gods, if you're listening to this in audio, I'm, I'm doing scare quotes around gods, all right? <laughs> the very gods are saying, don't do this. We're not, we're just human beings just like you. Uh, yeah, right, we're gonna do this anyway. And they're about to sacrifice to them. And Paul goes on a mission to make sure, and this is where he says, turn from these vain things to the living God. He says, not only do you have the wrong story, so it's producing the wrong behavior, but you have the wrong worship. You're about to worship me. You're about to worship human beings. You're trying to worship all this pantheon of all these different gods, and they didn't make any of this. They didn't make any of these things. They didn't make you. The living God, the one true God made you. The one who gives you life and breath and everything in you. The one who gives you food to enjoy. The God, the source of all creation, the source of all light and life. That is the God that you should turn to. That is the God that you should worship, not us. Not all of these thousands that, I mean, the Greeks, they believed in 12 main deities, but they had thousands of them, especially once you throw in uh, the half, you know, half humans, half gods, all those types of things. I mean, Paul in Acts chapter 17, he's going to run into this again. And in Athens, they literally have idols. The whole city is full of idols to all the different gods. And then they have a statue at the very end to an unknown God just in case they missed one. Do you remember that? And they say, okay, I can work with this. The unknown God, he is the one that I will proclaim to you. And it's interesting because in your Bibles, in the book of Acts, this is the first sermon that Paul preaches to an entirely pagan crowd that knows no scripture. It's the first time. Every time up to this point, do you remember church? They go into the synagogue first. Some people believe. They kind of get kicked out. They go here they got nada. They got zilch. They can't say, Isaiah the prophet, chapter 53, said he'll be pierced for our iniquities and wounded for... They'd be like, Isaiah who? I think I heard of Moses, maybe. Isn't that the guy that does the synagogue thing? They had nothing. And so it's very instructive as he preaches the good news. Where does Paul go with this crowd? He, he circles back to the creation itself. 
He starts with the creator. He goes back to Genesis 1.1. He says, all right, let's start at the beginning. In the beginning, God. (laughs) In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning, God created you. And he's trying to dispel their vain worship, their false worship with true worship, anchoring it back in the creator, anchoring it back in the one who created them, going back to the very, very beginning. Now, I'm sure that He was working his way back to Jesus. And remember, he's already preached Jesus. This guy was healed in Jesus' name. So though explicitly we don't see Jesus died for your sins and rose from the dead, I'm confident Paul made a beeline to Jesus somewhere in this. But he goes back to creation. He doesn't even quote scripture at this point. But he's full of truth, pointing them to the creator and saying, don't worship these vain things. Don't worship. And this is important, church. Don't worship me. Don't worship Barnabas. Worship God. This is one thing to walk into Athens and see all these statues and people worshiping those things. But picture this scene. The whole city is gathering to worship them. The preachers. The whole city is gathered and said, these guys got a message and they got power. Let's go sacrifice for them. They got the garlands ready. Do you see that? They're ready to put the garlands over their head. This is going to go really well. Paul and Barnabas, they could have just stopped the whole missionary thing, got in the castle, bring me more grapes, you know. (laughs) They would have had it made. What do Paul and Barnabas do? I'm tempted to do it, but my wife would be mad. Like... (laughs) (laughs) they tear their clothes now we don't do that often in our modern contemporary context but I mean when Jesus was on trial and they finally said he's standing up as the Christ the son of God remember the high priest tore his garment right this is part of their Jewish culture of horror of complete disbelief Now, the high priest did it wrongly. Jesus was exactly who he claimed to be. But Paul and Barnabas, when they see people trying to worship them, the preacher, the first thing they do is they rip their clothing in shock and unbelief at the blasphemy that is happening around them towards them. Remember in Acts chapter 10, when Peter is sent to Cornelius' household, and all of them, an angel said that Peter was going to come, and so they fall down to worship, worship him, and they're like, he's here, the one the angel said would come here. Do you remember what Peter said? He said, get up on your feet. I'm a person like you. Don't worship me. Because in America, probably not worshiping Zeus anymore. There's very few people that take seriously the Greek gods. They might find their way into fun movies, almost like a Marvel superhero, right? But we don't really believe that. But what these people are doing for Barnabas and Paul, it's everywhere. (laughs) Isn't it, church? And you know what's the scary thing at times in American Christianity? It creeps its way into the church. And it destroys our souls. It destroys the preacher's souls. You'll hear me and Ron say over and over again, we don't want to be put up on a pedestal. The class is going through the vision tour. We hit what it means to be reformed. You hit that a few weeks ago, right? Soli Deo Gloria. To God alone 
be the glory. The gospel delivers us from false worship, especially starting in the church. There is only one who deserves your worship, friends, and there is a personality cult, not, and shoot, social media is just full of that. Who's got the most followers? Like, we just follow people. It doesn't matter if they have any formal education, if their beliefs are anchored in truth in any way. If they have a large following, we like them, we thumb them up, we follow them. Careful. Now, there's some great celebrities. They're funny, good actors. I'm not saying, oh, you can't watch TV. None of that. But I'm saying, who are you giving authority over your heart and your soul? Who are you bowing down before just because everybody else is doing the same thing? We're going to see in a moment in the third point, the crowds are super fickle. And if you find yourself chasing the crowds, you will find yourself doing flip-flops back and forth, back and forth and worshiping all the wrong things. To escape Vanity Fair, not only are we delivered from false narratives, false backstories that make us interpret the present wrongly, but we're also delivered from false worship. Certainly that means we worship the living God through Jesus Christ alone. But it also means that we will accept no competition. We will render our praise to nobody else but him. And we will deflect and not receive praise ourselves. Escaping Vanity Fair delivers you from false narratives, false, excuse me, vain narratives, vain worship. Thirdly and finally, from vain crowds. From vain crowds. So verses 19 and 20. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples, that's the other believers, gathered about him, he rose up, entered the city, and on the next day he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. Now, this is almost humorous to me. Those of you doing the Bible reading plan, I think I commented on this in there. It's like, I get whiplash reading those two verses next to each other. Do you, let, let me back up again. Verse 18, even with these words, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifice to them. And then having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul. Like, what just happened? You got this whole crowd with garlands ready to sacrifice the heifer to them and for them to worship them. All of a sudden, this other mob comes from the other two cities. Those are the, the people who are ticked off from the synagogues that tried to persecute them and stone them before. It's in those other texts. Check them out. So they're on the hunt. They finally fall part of his ball and they somehow whip up this crowd into a frenzy where all of a sudden they're like, worship them, worship them, worship them. We didn't know. Kill them! Kill them! And the same thing, they're, they're now throwing stones at Paul so much so that they think that they've killed him. He's dragged out of the city, whether miraculous or otherwise he's just really good at playing dead. I don't know, maybe, you know. But either way, he's like, are they gone? All right. And where's he go? He goes back into the city and rests for the night and then leaves. He's like, all right, guys, are they gone? All right. But you see in this, isn't it? incredible how fickle crowds can be? How one moment, woo, 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 the next they're throwing you under the bus within like the same day. Mob justice, watch out, right? 
One more example where if we want to escape Vanity Fair, we will get off of the circuit where we're just trying to chase after whatever the crowd believes. Because Christian, this is not how you develop your beliefs. Are you ready? It's not a popularity contest. It's not even what most of the other people around you think at work. All right? Your convictions do not move. They do not change based on what other people think or believe. Paul isn't like, well, if all of you are worshiping me, I guess it's okay. Seems normal. Like, Paul knows what he believes. And if all of the crowds believe differently than him, he's not changing. Why? Because he's called to bear witness to the truth, right? He's called to stand his ground no, ground no matter what. And by the way, when all of them throw stones at him, he's not like, man, I lost the popularity contest. Like, I'm not going to be able to fill up a congregation anymore. No one's going to come hear me preach, better tweak the message. No. Shakes the dust off, right? Going on. And he'll tell everybody, Turn from these vain things. Turn from them. The popularity contest is not the way to determine truth. All right? Truth is revealed from heaven through Jesus Christ and in his word. And if you want to know where the crowd should go and to try to lead the crowds to Christ, anchor yourself in his truth, just like Paul and Barnabas, and stand for the truth. Sometimes, and even in this nation, sometimes standing for Jesus made people popular. It's possible as the weeks, months, years go ahead, sometimes the tides turn. How to be a Christian? You're a Christian? You go to church on Sundays? Uh, yes, you do. Whether or not you're the only one. Right? I, I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. No turning back. Because chasing the crowd's approval is chasing after the wind. Shoot. Look how fast morals are changing in America right now. <laughs> sexual ethics are changing right now. And we hold contradictory beliefs. People want sexual liberty and then they're telling people, oh, you slept with that person on the first date? That was rape. And Well, that's what you told us to do. I read the magazines in the, new, in the grocery store. It said like first and second. Like we're all tied up in knots in this nation. If you believe that Marriage is between a man and a woman and only to have sex inside of that. Well, that's what your Bible says. Just stand there. This thing is moving around. It's changing. Just stay faithful to your marriage. And that doesn't mean be judgmental to everybody outside of the church. It's just you don't need to follow the crowds. Just stand your ground, bear witness to Jesus, live a loving life, preach the gospel. Do not follow the crowds on any number of issues. Because one day you'll follow them and they're going to move anyway. And they're just going to throw stones at you once you find it. It's just not worth it, church. We will not follow the crowds. We're going to just stand our ground. We're going to stand for Jesus lovingly, compassionately, but it's a chasing after the wind. Societies change, cultures change. We are called to remain faithful and steadfast to Jesus Christ, no matter what the crowds think, no matter what the crowds do, no matter what your political party does. Their, their platforms change too. Did you notice that? So you have to, let's remain kingdom independence. I'm not saying you can't register as a Republican or Democrat, but please, in your soul, there's only one platform. And if the platform changes, you do not. We stand our ground.
Vanity of vanities. <laughs> There's a vanity under the wind. But there is a living God, church. And he delivers us from vanity. He delivers us from the vapor of life. He delivers us from the meaningless. He delivers us from the emptiness, the empty promises. He delivers us from the need to be worshiped. He delivers us from false worship. He delivers us from the false backstories that destroy our lives. And he delivers us from people pleasing and trying to live for the applause of the crowds. God will deliver you. And the word that Paul preached over them, I want to preach over you. We must, you should turn from these vain things. And I want you to circle the word should. Because it implies an imperative, right? It doesn't say we may turn from these vain things. We have an opportunity to turn from these vain things. It's saying you should turn from this. So as we wrap up today's message, let us study our own hearts. What are the vain things that hold our souls? What is the false worship that we're tempted to render or tempted to receive? We should turn from them. We should turn from these vain things to the living God. Christian escapes from vanity fair, but not before his friend faithful is executed in prison. A false trial comes against him and they tell him he has defied the laws of their city and the laws of the land. And certainly he's turned as an enemy of the state and an enemy of the Lord of the land. His name is Lord Beelzebub. <laughs> he says, I will not bow to Lord Beelzebub and he's gone. But somehow Christian escapes from Vanity Fair and on his way out, a native of Vanity Fair leaves Vanity Fair to join him. And his name is Hopeful. And Hopeful has been watching Christian. And he was impressed with his words and his behavior despite how they were treated in Vanity Fair. And Hopeful becomes a pilgrim with Christian and joins him on the path to the celestial city. And brothers and sisters, that's what we long for. That we're faithful in our behavior, we're faithful in our beliefs, we're faithful in our communication. And that even if we are persecuted for our beliefs one day, and I don't want to hypersensitize, I don't think Christians are very much persecuted right now in America. It happens a lot of places. But if we are faithful, may other hopeful Christians join us and become pilgrims with us on this journey to the celestial city as we escape. Vanity Fair. Please stand. Let's pray. <clears throat> Lord, we need you. We need the living God to deliver us, Lord. We confess as a people that we are tempted. We're tempted to receive false worship. We're tempted to render false worship. We're tempted to let competing narratives define who we are, where we came from, what gives us significance, what makes us feel important. And Lord, your word says we should turn from those vain things. So today as a church, Lord, we search our hearts for the vain things that hold our hearts. And today as a people, 
we resolve to turn from them by the grace of God, by your power and by the power of the Holy Spirit. And if you're here this morning and you haven't turned to Jesus Christ, the way to escape Vanity Fair is not through your own willpower. It's not through picking the lock and getting out. It's a rescue mission that Jesus himself initiated. Because the crowds got it wrong, Paul and Barnabas were not gods in human flesh. And yet there was one who truly was God in human flesh. And if they would have lifted their eyes from Paul and Barnabas, as I'm calling you to do today, to Jesus, he is the one that came from heaven to earth. He is the one that healed this lame man. He is the one that can deliver you and set you free from these vain things and from your sin. So turn to Jesus today. The way you do is by faith saying, Jesus, I turn to you. Forgive me for the vain things that I find my purpose and hope in. Today I find my purpose in you, the living God who made me, who made heaven and earth, the living God who gives me every good thing to enjoy. Lord, forgive us for when we worship the creation and the good things that you've created for us to enjoy, and rather than the creator that gave us those things to enjoy. Today we say no to worshiping the creation. Today we say no to worshiping human beings created uh, with flesh and blood like us. Today we say no to stories that are false and we say yes to you. If you prayed that prayer today, know this, that God has forgiven your sins. That God will and has given you the gift of everlasting life. And that Jesus Christ himself has come and will live inside of you by his spirit to give you power to journey on your way to the celestial city. Lord, we need you. And as we sing this song of praise to you now, we turn it into a prayer that we are wholly dependent upon you, the living God. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.